welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The year flew by fast and we're already looking back at the most memorable moments and events. One bright spot was the many beautiful and groundbreaking Native art exhibitions and public shows. Gallery exhibits like Grounded in Clay and Nujimo, She Heals, gave highlighted work that the public doesn't always see. And fashion designers like Shosho Eskiro, Jamie Akuma, and Lauren Goodday took the form to new heights. We're recapping 2022 in Native art after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Alaska Department of Corrections disclosed another inmate death this week, the 18th to die in state custody, the highest death rate in two decades. I'd like to know why they died or how they died. State Senator Donnie Olson would like to know more about the Alaska Native inmates who died. Of the 18, nine were either Alaska Native or American Indian, and eight were from Olson's district, which takes in a huge swath of the northernmost parts of the state. As a physician, I value life very highly, and to have deaths happen with this number, especially when there's so many of them are from my district, I am very disturbed by it. Senator Olson says he supports demands from the Alaska Civil Liberties Union for a full-scale investigation into this year's prison deaths, one they say the governor of Alaska has ignored. His administration has said none of the deaths were suspicious or unusual. But Olson says with half of them from one minority group, that should be a huge red flag. Megan Edge, who heads up the ACLU's prison project, says these deaths point to a systemic problem in Alaska's prisons. It's not surprising in that regard, and I don't mean that to like undermine it. It's, it's incredibly sad, but I think it goes to show that we're still running a system that disregards the lives of black and brown people. Edge says the high rates of suicide, especially for Alaska Native inmates, are also cause for alarm. The Department of Corrections said in a statement that its staff takes every death very seriously, regardless of race or nationality, and that updated policy and procedures meet the ever-changing national standards set by the National Commission on Correctional Health Care. Families of the inmates who died in custody have told the ACLU they've had trouble getting information from the state about how their loved one died. The Corrections Department says it can't give out those details, citing medical privacy laws. Senator Olson has told families to contact his office if they need help in learning more. An Arizona State University graduate says she wants to help shape public policy to help change inequities Native Americans face. Alex Gonzalez has more. Tylesha Yellowhair says changing public policy that guides social services would not only ensure that tribal members receive the care they need, but also help to change the public perception of Native communities. She says tribal communities face challenges like any other, but they hold lots of strength and resiliency. Yellowhair is from the Navajo Nation and currently works in the Office of Health Programs for the Phoenix Area Indian Health Services as a social service assistant. She says she wants her story to serve as an inspiration to others. I hope that my story being shared can change the image of what people have of Native communities. Like we too can become professionals. We too 
can deal with policy. We too have the power to change what's happening around us. Yellow hair comes from a family of teachers and is the first social worker and public administrator. She says her mother, a teacher of more than 50 years, was fundamental in helping her understand that people have different lived experiences. Yellow hair says her childhood influenced the work she does today. She acknowledges that she grew up in a home with two educated working parents and knows that wasn't the case for everyone. Her graduate work led her to study violence in indigenous communities, specifically against Native women and children. Yellow hair says she hasn't met a single Native woman who wasn't impacted by some sort of violence in her life, and she's convinced there must be a greater focus on this issue. To me, that speaks volumes, and that is what continues to drive me as a person who strives to be an advocate for my community. She says she hopes to give back to her community and others by advocating through policy or fighting for systemic change. That was Alex Gonzalez and I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. What if someone said you owe money to the IRS and have to pay with a gift card? Or they ask for a gift card so you can avoid going to jail? Stop. It's a scam. Gift cards are for gifts, not payments. Report scams at reportfraud.ftc.gov. Support by the Federal Trade Commission. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. A bright spot in 2022 is the reopening of public spaces, like galleries and museums. And that also opened opportunities to see new Native art all across the country. This was a centennial year for both the Santa Fe Indian Market and the Gallup Intertribal Indian Ceremonial. They celebrated with in-person events last summer. Among the notable exhibitions was Nujimo, She Heals, at All My Relations Art in Minneapolis. This was also a big year for Native fashion as Indigenous models and designers found expanded recognition. We'll recap 2022 in Native art in this hour, and you can join us. What Native artists or art exhibits resonated especially well with you this year? Give us a call. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our phone lines are open. Our producers are standing by, so please, we'd love to hear your comments regarding today's show. Joining us first and on the line in Seattle, Washington, is Dr. Miranda Ballardi-Lewis. She's an independent curator and assistant professor in the Information School at the University of Washington. She's Zuni and Tlingit. Miranda, welcome back to NAC. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's wonderful to have you here talking with us. Uh, so much going on, as I understand it, in the world of Native arts. Uh, please, could you give us a just an overview of, of some high-profile art exhibits and events that uh, you're especially excited about here in 2022. Well, I, I think putting that emphasis on the artists is always a great place to start. And so, yes, there's these exhibitions. Yes, there's this 
um, markets going on, but we, none of that is possible without the Native artists. And so they deserve all of the credit for um, providing inspiration for us all the time, right? And this is generations and thousands of year old tradition of inspiring everyone around them. And the way that that's showing up this year um, has been through major um, museum installations. So like the Whitney um, Biennial that happened this year, there was a record number of Native artists that were um, featured through there, uh, Rebecca Belmore, um, Deani Whitehawk, and I'm blanking on a bunch of other people, uh, Raven uh, Chacon, and a lot of um, Dwayne Linklater. There was just mm -hmm. a ton of Native artists, I mean, Native representation there. But then there's also the solo shows because the, the biennials are group shows. And then there was a, a bunch of solo shows too. And the Native women always are killing it, right? And so the recognition <laughs> that they're starting to get is fantastic. And so some that come to mind are um, Rose Simpson. Um, she's getting a lot of, of exhibition work and is being recognized for her contributions in clay. Um, I already mentioned Diani Whitehawk, but you can't mention Diani enough. Like, she's just an amazing painter, mm -hmm. um, multimedia artist. Allison Bremner just had a solo show at the Alaska State Museum um, up in Juneau, Alaska. Um, Preston Singletary still has a show going on that opened up at the National Museum of the American Indian, a Smithsonian um, Museum. So that's still on display in D.C., I know Amber Dawn is, um, will be talking about the Native fashion going on in Santa Fe, but there's just some really fantastic ways that individual artists are being recognized as well as group shows. Um, the Museum of Modern Art also has some group shows of Halea um, Tanajani and Cara Romero. You know, so there's a lot of a lot of efforts that are seems like it's coming out of nowhere, but if you've been paying attention, it's been building and building and building for the last couple of decades. And so we're seeing this explosion. It feels like an explosion because folks outside of our community are just now starting to see what's been happening all along. Right, right. It's just gaining more mainstream appeal. And and why do you think that is, Miranda? Does it have something to do with social media and just the fact that Native artists are able to get more publicity and connect more with uh, other enthusiasts that might not in the past have had access to, to Native art? That's a great question. I think social media is definitely playing a role because then the artists can present their work and their own timeline. They don't have to wait for an exhibition that might take a couple of years to develop because mm -hmm. um, that's the usual timeline for big museums. It takes like two to three years for these big exhibitions to get organized and then happen. And social media is like, I could finish this work. You can see it tomorrow. You can see the works in progress. And so it gets people interested. The other thing is that there's more and more Native folks and allies that are getting into positions of leadership and institutional power. And so they're able to prioritize Native arts and work them into a schedule and say, no, we, 
we need to have more Native representation. We need to have more Black representation, Asian American, you know, and so like really diversifying the offerings that happen um, within museum and gallery spaces. This is all so exciting, Miranda. And when we opened the show, I mentioned 2022, it seems like we're really pulling through the pandemic now and just we're, we're out and about more so much and things have just in many ways uh, gone back to, to the way they've been in the past. It's that normalization, if you want to call it. And I'm curious, though, with regard to the impact of the pandemic and, and the lockdowns and just some of the the emotional and physical tolls that were uh, placed in so many native communities throughout throughout Indian country. Do you think that's being reflected at all in some of the art that's coming out now and some of the artists, do you see any of that? Like just anything that kind of connects to the pandemic or is it, uh, is it reflected at all in some new pieces or, or in the way some of our, our native artists are approaching their work? I think so. And, and the biggest impact it's had, you know, is on our economics. And so in I'm from Zuni Pueblo, and so shout out to everyone that's still Deshqui or just coming out of Deshqui. But um, we, there's so many folks in Zuni that rely on the arts to either supplement their income or that is their primary means of income. And so without the tourists, without the markets, without... Um, the large interactions between uh, the buyers and and the artists and the artisans, it it was really really hard, and so that's when social media did play a role. But also for um, that's not unique to our community. And when you look at artists that are making conceptual work, there is this. I, the way I've seen it is not so much in the pandemic itself and documenting that, but it looks like a lot of artists are becoming more introspective and really looking at the things that make Native communities strong. And so there's an emphasis on languages, there's an emphasis on spirituality and how that's coming through in the art because those are the aspects of our community that really make us strong and hearty and have lasted us, helped us last for thousands of years and are going to carry us through for the next few thousand. Mm -hmm. Now, Miranda, you've been a curator for a number of years. And, and when you reflect back at the, the beginning of your career, the onset, and just the evolution that, that you've witnessed with regard to Native artists and Native art in general, has anything surprised you in terms of how things have unfolded or... Um, where we're at now in terms of Indian art is, um, does it seem pretty much like where you always thought it would be at this point here, 2022? I don't know. I should have wrote some predictions down a few years ago. <laughs> so I can <laughs> go back and look at them. Maybe I should start that this year. Um, but the thing that I've been really happy to see is just this growing number of museum professionals, um, curators, writers, designers, artists, and not just the artists themselves, because communicating what an artist wants to say through their art is is strengthened and, and helped by people from the same type of background. And so in my, my role as a curator is to help the artist say what they want to say through their art and the way that it's displayed 
indigenous curator is really, really exciting. That's something I probably didn't, I, I knew was happening, but I didn't anticipate the rate that it was happening. And so then you see just curated exhibitions all over the place. You see um, community curated um, at, in local tribal museums. Like, it's just a really exciting way for people to realize we can tell a story through the art and the way the art is presented, and let's do it. I really like what you just said, Miranda. Uh, the the job of a, a curator is to help the artists say what they want to say because I can totally relate it as the host of Native America Calling. I very much feel that's my job is to help our guests say what they want to say. And it's been said before on this show, everybody has a story, but, but not everybody uh, is as good at telling their story as other people. And that's where where folks like you step in and, and you can assist with that. And it's a, a wonderful gift for sure. We're having a, a really interesting discussion today here on Native America Calling. We are talking about art and fashion and some of the big highlights uh, for 2022. The year is winding down quickly, very quickly. And we have three really interesting guests on our show today. And they're going to give us a rundown on what's happened in 2022. And they're also going to give us a sneak peek at what we might expect coming up in the year to come, 2023, with regard to Native art and fashion. And if you are... Uh, a big uh, Native art supporter or an artist yourself, or maybe you're a Native fashionista, we'd love to hear from you today. 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Cedar is an important natural material for many tribes. The tall evergreens in the Pacific Northwest are made into totems, canoes, and clothing. In many other places, the fragrant leaves are used in food, medicine, and ceremonies. On the next Native America Calling, we'll talk about the cultural significance and conservation of cedar. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're wrapping up 2022 in Native Art today, and you are welcome to join our discussion. Were there any Indigenous artists, exhibitions, or shows that made an impact on you this year? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. Before we jump back into today's conversation, I want to take a minute to let you listen to a podcast project by our sister production, Indigify, that features Native artists and performers. The full podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the other places you normally find podcasts. You can also find it by going to nv1.org and clicking on our Native Artist series. In this short excerpt, we're going to hear from Dorothy Friedenberg, who founded a burlesque club in Anchorage. She goes by the name Violet LeVamp, and she's talking here with podcast host Chandra Safran. 
So burlesque, you know, burlesque, if you look it up, you know, you, you see like feathers and sequins and corsets and like big bustles and um, just very extravagant, beautiful costuming. We very much do that, but we don't do it all the time. Um, and we love to incorporate like, you know, singing, comedy, theatrics, um, and we add burlesque elements to it. So that's my definition of cabaret. <laughs> Cabaret also is uh, essentially like a nightclub um, that that holds all of those things. Like they have musicians, they have comedians, they have people that do spoken word. It's a cabaret club. Um, it's kind of the definition of it. So when we put together like our entire, you know, the goal that we do is like we really just want to do everything, <laughs> but we want to we want to have the burlesque feel behind it, um, just because it's fun. And people, I don't know, for some reason, people really enjoy seeing us take our clothes off. <laughs> and we enjoy doing it. Like, there's a silliness to it, right? Oh, As a theater genre, cabaret at its heart is a sex, gender, and body positive form of art and celebration. To perform regularly in a successful theater and nightlife business showcases craft. To co-found and co-own the company creates a steady sense of ownership by indigenous women in entertainment. How does sexuality in art made by indigenous women and femmes help reinforce our own sense of agency? rather than victimization. Yeah, it's a sense of pride for sure. I know for me, when I go and I see, you know, a Native artist that's like doing like drag or singing or um, bodybuilding, I'm just, I'm not going to name names, but like, you know, people I follow on Facebook that I really look up to or, you know, their bands and their artists, um, just it gives, so it's kind of that effect where you see someone do it and you're like, I want to be able to do that. I can do that, maybe, right? Um, and you're just so inspired by it. And so that's kind of part of, I'm getting chills, like, just talking about this, like, part of, like, why I love performing and I keep doing it. And it's the fuel that, like, feeds my fire is that I want to be an inspiration to other Indigenous women. And, you know, there are a lot of talented people out in the world, right? And, like, you can, too. It's not just, you know, it's not just me. It's everybody, and everybody deserves to be, everybody deserves to feel beautiful, to feel vibrant, to be heard, to have a voice, right? And you can do that in a way that isn't offensive, that is loving, right? And that delicate balance that you're talking about. Um, yeah, I think everyone just deserves to feel that way. That was Dorothy Friedenberg, co-founder of the Sweet Cheeks Cabaret Dance Company in Anchorage, Alaska. She's speaking here with Chandra Safran, the host of the Indigify Arts Series. The full podcast is available now every place you download your podcasts. Let's talk some Native fashion now. Joining us is Amber Dawn Bearrobe. She's the Indigenous fashion show producer for the Southwestern Association for Indian Arts and an art history professor at the Institute for American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She's from the Siksika Nation. Amber Dawn, welcome back to NAC as well. Thank you. It's great to be back. 
Great to have you, Amber Dawn. Uh, 2022, big year for Indigenous fashion? A big year, a big jam-packed, full, and fantastic year. Well, tell us about it. We want to hear. All right. Well, uh, where do I start? Um, so much uh, went on. I can start with um, Crystal Bridges. They had their first in, uh, uh, fashion exhibition uh, curated by Michelle Finnamore, which included Native designers Jamie Okuma, and uh, oh, I'm forgetting the other ones. But Jamie Okuma was in. Uh, oh, and featuring also GNU as well as Lloyd Kivanu, and then the Institute of American Indian Arts Museum of uh, Contemporary Native Art had their first Indigenous fashion exhibition, their first fashion exhibition curated by myself called Art of Indigenous Fashion. And then Sly, of course, we had our first full market in two years, which included two full fashion shows. We also had designers such as Jamie Okuma um, launching her new ready-to-wear collection as well as Elias Not Afraid launched his first ready-to-wear collection. Sorry, Jamie Okuma, that wasn't her first. It was just her 2022 uh, collection. Um, Orlando Dugai, he made his first full men's collection that debuted on the Flyer Runway. I could go on and on about what has uh, the exciting things that happened in the, the fashion world for 2022. Well, I had a chance to go up to Indian Market. Uh, in fact, we did a couple of shows for Indian Market. You were you were a guest on one of them, and I just was so impressed by the whole uh, the fashion aspect of that. You folks just had it going on the shows, and just you know the models were out and about. Uh, you know, there at market and, and meeting people, and it was just it's become such a, a big part of, of Indian Market, and uh, it's just so exciting. And now you've been involved with uh, since the inception, right? In 2014, when when the first uh, Swaya uh, a fashion show started? Yeah, I uh, did the first one, and I, that's why I didn't realize how popular it was going to be, and it just has grown leaps and bounds every every year. The first one was at Cathedral Park, and I literally brought the, the models to the park in the back of a U-Haul truck, and, <laughs> uh, and uh, it was free and open to the public and it was a lot of fun and put it together with a $200 budget and here we are now with uh, um, uh, in the convention center a thousand uh, people in the audience and around 100 to 200 models and so it is we've grown uh, outgrown the convention center and we're trying to um, think about where problem solve of where to uh, how to expand and we're looking at uh, uh, indigenous swaya Santa Fe Fashion Week, and so that's what I'm working on at this point, but it's uh, very exciting to see how far the Swaya fashion has come since 2014. Well, good job. Again, it's just uh, so inspirational to see the progress, and I know that Swaya just uh, hosted the, the annual winter market uh, just a few weeks ago. Now, was there a fashion component to the winter market this year? No, there was not a fashion component. You know, the winter market is really you know, Christmas and the holidays and family and focusing on the, the artists who are um, uh, debuting and showing and selling at the winter market. And this year, for the first time, we actually had the winter market in the convention center, which was fabulous. This was one of our, uh, I think, the most successful 
winter market that SWAI has had since its inception. It was fantastic. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, currently, there, there is no executive director for SWAI. I know there are you folks are in, in a transition phase right now. And any thoughts about how that's going to affect the market in 2023 when, when new leadership comes on board? Oh, new leadership. I fully embrace it. Uh, our interim director, Jamie Schultz, is just fantastic, fabulous. We are so happy she is leading the ship right now. And I just have nothing but excitement for the future with uh, Jamie leading the ship as interim director. So nothing but uh, good, positive, new roads and trajectories for SWIA 2023 and beyond. Well, that's certainly good to hear, Amber Dawn. And um, in addition to, to the fashion shows, I, I know that you hosted a panel in November and, and you focused on, on what some might call the OGs, uh, the old school indigenous fashion designers and such. And tell us more, what inspired that discussion? Um, well, it was uh, part of the programming with the exhibition I curated, Art of Indigenous Fashion at Mokana. And that was a panel, uh, the OGs of Indigenous Fashion. And, and specifically to the Southwest. And that, uh, well, first of all, the, the programming is part of the exhibition, but the, the title really was inspired by uh, when I was writing um, my paper for the Crystal Bridges publication, uh, when I was talking to or, or, uh, Virgil Ortiz, he's like, the OGs, we have a lot of stories to tell. And that's where that, that title came from. And so the, the panel, you know, rather than an academic kind of stuffy, uh, you know, those are really important discuss, discussions and panels to have. But I, in line with the, the, the fashion exhibition and also with the fashion shows at Swaya, I wanted to bring out and draw out stories. I mean, these are living histories and there's so many stories and abundance of designers that are not only a wealth of of fabulous fashion and vision, but also a wealth of stories that I'm really trying to to gather together and to not only publish and write about them, but to have a conversation with the designers themselves and with the public. And it was just such a fun two hours that went by really fast. The, the panelists were Marcus Ammerman, who was really active when uh, during when II had a good strong fashion program as well as Patricia Michaels who of course uh, was inspired by Lloyd Kivenu who was one of who is the patriarch of indigenous fashion and then Orlando Dugai who I, I see really as kind of the the future representing the future the, the present and future generation generations of native fashion. So it was just a really great conversation and some fun stories came out, some scandalous stories came out. And so I have to have more of those, not only uh, conversations with designers, but also those are papers that I'm working on currently that will be published within the next couple of years into uh, exhibition catalogs. Amber John, what about uh, Indigenous models? Uh, who right now is really gaining a lot of traction on the runway? Well, I will say I am so pleased. This year, the models were off the chart. The models are always off the chart for, for Swaya Fashion, and I'm so grateful for all of the models. Uh, you know, of course, the show could not happen without them, and this year they braved a 100-foot runway, and I'm telling you, that is hard to do in heels, walking down a runway with a thousand, uh, <laughs> a, a thousand people staring at you. And then at the end, you have the whole uh, paparazzi. Uh, so it, it is definitely a, a really 
great skill, talented skill, and so grateful for all the models. But this year we had Kiwana, who is uh, who is absolutely, you know, hitting and just hitting all the the fashion pages from Vogue to to Fashion Canada to to um, fashion pages uh, globally. So I'm very grateful that Kwana walked for Lauren Goodday this year, as well as uh, uh, Kwana's partner, uh, Faro, um, mm-hmm. from the uh, Reservation Dogs. We also had some other star models, such as Jessica Matten and Kiowa Gordon, who are uh, supporting leads for the hit AMC series, Dark Winds. Um, we also had uh, former Miss, Miss Alaska, um, Alyssa, London, and th- this year's runway was just packed full of not only um, just native stars, but art stars and model stars. It was, uh, I can't wait, the, the model roster is just getting more and more exciting each year. So I can't wait to uh, see who de- de- debuts and has a little appearance on uh, this uh, 2023's Wild Runway. I, I really like how some of these uh, native actors are, are able to do the modeling as well. Like you mentioned, Kiowa Gordon and, and some of these other people that are in some of these really hit shows right now and movies. And it's just great to see them also on the runway. And I also want to ask you, Amber Donna, Ashley Collingbull, what did you think of her uh, Sports Illustrated spread this year? Oh, first of all, I want to say, how could I forget Amber Midthunder, the lead of Prey, um, who uh, one of the producers of Jane Myers, who was also on the runway. They were uh, also on the runway, which we were so happy to have. And, you know, one of the, the things um, of that in terms of these um, the models and what people don't see is that behind the stage, and then after the fashion shows, the models and the designers and Jessica Matten of Dark Winds, she said, you know, this is just such a great, you know, kind of family event in terms of all of us um, individuals from different parts of Canada and the United States come and either like we're meeting new, uh, you know, brothers and sisters, but also reconnecting with, with people and friends that we haven't seen for a long time. So there really is. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Slaya in itself just brings together all these people, but the Slaya Fashion Show also ha- is this other layer of connection and community and being brought together and meeting new friends. And, you know, that, that really stuck, at, uh, stuck out to me when Jessica Matten um, said how that was just a huge part of the Slaya Fashion Show and had so much meaning, meaning to her. Um, now, Ashley Collingball, that's really something I, I can't speak to. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't really speak to that. She is, uh, you know, not many, not too many Native Americans in America know too much about her. You know, she's, I know she's really big in Canada, but there's so many great things that are happening in, happening in Canada that, uh, you know, down in America we don't hear too much about, which is also why I, I really focus on any programming I do, whether it be art exhibitions, fashion exhibitions, or fashion runways, is um, I, I about I would say a good 50% of the designers and models I work with are from Canada. And I really like to bring to the American, um, to the American eye and public awareness uh, just this, this amazing, fantastic talent that is not only in America, but also in uh, Canada. Right, One example right. is Catherine Blackburn. Uh, she had uh, a standing ovation for her 
closing um, for her closing set on the runway. And uh, yeah, I that um, that's really important in in the programming and the work that I do is to really highlight Native Indigenous people across Canada and the United States, and eventually globally. So you see, I could talk on and on. I could have a whole hour just <laughs> okay, talking no worries. about Indigenous <laughs> We do have to take a break here, Amber Dom, but it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And yeah, we draw so much inspiration uh, from you Indigenous folks uh, north of the border. And, and not just the modeling, of course, but so much acting, so many cool films and television shows, so much uh, entertainment coming from our Indigenous brothers and sisters uh, in Canada. So Wonderful discussion with Amber Dawn Bearrobe about Indigenous fashion. We are going to have to take another short break. But when we come back, we've got Joe Williams. He's the director of the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. He's up in Fargo, North Dakota. So we'll be right back. Support for the menu comes from Spirit Mountain Roasting Company, a small batch specialty coffee roaster located on the Fort Yuma Quetzon Reservation. Information and online ordering at spiritmountainroasting.com slash news. Support by Stronghearts Native Helpline, providing no-charge confidential support and resources to Native Americans affected by domestic and sexual violence 24-7 at 1-844-7-NATIVE or strongheartshelpline.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking Native art highlights of 2022, and there is still time to join our conversation. So give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. I'll give you that number again if you want to share any comments related to Native art or fashion this year, 1-800-996-2848. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the big exhibitions this year. And to do that, we have Joe Williams up in Fargo, North Dakota. He's the director of Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. He is Sistan Wapton Oyate. Joe, welcome to the show. Sean, thank you for having me. This is great. You bet, Joe. And uh, let's talk a little bit more about some exhibits. Which ones uh, caught your eye this year, especially? Well, it's it's been a great year for for exhibitions. Um, you know, in the Minneapolis area, uh, we had uh, Nujimo. Uh, she heals, and it was by artist curator uh, Hilary Kempenek. Uh, she's Turtle Mountain Ojibwe, and you know she was able to to get a, a group exhibition together of these these artists that it really focused on like the aunties, right? Um, you know, there are our family members in our communities, and her her take and the different perspectives of all the different artists that were part of it really made for an exciting and thoughtful uh, exhibition, and it was really great to be able to have experienced that in the Minneapolis area, Minnesota. Um, you know, looking looking back, um, there's been a major exhibition this year uh, curated by Kathleen Ash Milby um, with the Portland Art Museum and the National Museum of the American Indian, uh, Dakota Modern, the art of Oscar Howe. Uh, for those who, who might not know who Oscar Howe was, he was a 20th century artist and educator and really was uh, a leader in contemporary Native American art and really... Um, yeah, just really, really was a leader in in um, in the art world uh, for for decades. And so there hasn't been an exhibition for him uh, in over a generation. And so Kathleen, with her team, uh, spent a number of years uh, putting this together. And it is it's it's an amazing exhibition. It's still up. It's over in Portland, 
at the Portland Art Museum, and I recommend if, if you can get to it and check it out, it is absolutely worth your time and effort to get there, for sure. It sounds really exciting, and Oscar Howe, going back uh, a number of years to the to the last century there, and he still inspires so many Native artists today. And what do you think it is about his, his legacy, Oscar Howe, that that makes him still so prolific after after so many years? Well, I think it's it's a couple of things. You know, you know, uh, Oscar Howe, um, he really emphasized that if you were going to create artwork about your culture, you know, he was a he was a Dakota or Nakota, um, that you you be authentic in the way you depict it, in the way you talk about it. Don't don't make it up, right? And he really passed that lesson along to um, his students. And so there's a generation of students that really tried to ensure that, you know, the work that they were doing came from a place of authenticity. Um, you know, and early in the 20th century, uh, you know, the art movement, the, the idea of Indian art was supposed to be a communal um, representation, not individual expressionism. And he he pushed back against that. Um, the the sort of the depiction of the the flat uh, ceremonial depictions and really brought forward uh, the personal experience in art and that was something very inspirational for a whole generation of artists and he really pushed the idea that Indian art is created by whatever the Indian artist wants to create right um, we don't have to subscribe to these outside definitions of who we are and I think that speaks to what we do today. And really looking at his work, you don't see people doing the same thing that he did. He was so uh, unique in, in the way he created his work. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who's ever been to the Department of Interior building there in Washington, D.C., there's some beautiful, beautiful murals in that building. And if I'm not mistaken, Joe, um, I think some of those are Oscar Howe's. Uh, possibly. I've, I've not been to that facility. Um you know, a lot of the mural work that I'm aware of that he did was either in Oklahoma uh, when he was teaching down there or in South Dakota um, when he was teaching there either before World War II or a lot of his work um, is at the University of South Dakota uh, where he was a professor at for, for many years. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Joe, earlier I asked our guest, uh, Miranda, Miranda Bellardi-Lewis, uh, about COVID and whether or not she sees it impacting Native artists now here in 2022. And I want to ask you the same question. Do you see uh, influences of the pandemic coming out now in Native art? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I uh, juried a couple shows this last year. Uh, one was a contemporary indigeneity out of the University of Nebraska. And so many of those pieces, wonderful, wonderful, great pieces, were a direct reflection of everyone's experience over the last two years uh, with the COVID lockdown and everything that was going on. Same with the Northern Plains Indian Art Market in Sioux Falls. Uh, it was the same thing. Um, you know, artists are always, uh, they're, they're always that reflection of the times that we live in. And it's, it's very clear, you know, that um, COVID is going to shape the way we talk about um, our world for the next generation or so. And, you know, there's, there's a stark difference between the art that was coming out three, four years ago and to what's coming out today. And it's just, um, it's just what's happening right now. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, Oh, go ahead. 
Well, uh, I was just going to ask you, Joe, in, in there, in the museums, in the galleries, are you seeing uh, more people coming in now that COVID has eased up and the lockdowns have eased? Are people coming back into galleries more, larger numbers, visitors? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we, we were, we were worried uh, for the two years that we were um, locked down. Well, I mean, we weren't closed, but, you know, we had limitations on who could come in and we had really held off in having uh, public, um, public programming, but we were seeing that our numbers at the planes and some of the, the folks that I talked to um, that are, are doing what we're doing, uh, the numbers are, are larger than they were um, pre pandemic. I think people are ready to, to, around other people again uh, to get out of their houses and to experience things again and so that's definitely the numbers of folks that we've um, that we've been seeing coming through our doors it's it's pretty incredible and Joe another highlight of 2022 that I think you'll appreciate uh, was the appointment of Cynthia Chavez Lamar there at uh, National Museum of the American Indian have you been happy mm. so far with with Cynthia's role there at the museum I think so. Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to meet her. Uh, I think it was back in March during the Oscar Howe opening. We we spoke briefly, um, and so I didn't uh, get a chance to talk too much with her. But yeah, you know, I, I've noticed there's been a lot of change in leadership across the country um, in museums, and whether that's uh, part of the natural cycle of people moving in and through uh, organizations, or if it's something about um, sort of the reopening of museums across the country. Um, I'm not too sure, you know, if what if one is driving the other. Uh, but I'm always for, uh, you know, fresh ideas, fresh perspectives, and new energy coming into places. And so, yeah, I'm just really excited for what she's going to bring. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to the next couple of years uh, with them and other institutions. And looking ahead, Joe, into 2023, what do you folks have planned uh, there at the Plains Art Museum? Well, um, we we currently have uh, our, our we we have an exhibition with Crow Shadow um, Institute of the Arts. Uh, we we have a joint exhibition. Uh, they we have some of their prints uh, paired up with some of our items from our collections, and the exhibition is called Wana Nishni Yepi, which is a uh, kind of a conversation between generations. Um, it's it's in our second floor gallery, our Native American space there. Uh, it's a beautiful exhibition um, with these prints that they they had provided us. Um, we have a solo exhibition this March for Gerald Knoyer. Uh, I think it's his first exhibition, uh, solo exhibition in about 10 years, and it's called Sends a Voice. Um, new works of his, it'll be in the space there. And this fall, uh, we're working with the University of South Dakota. We're having a, a, an Oscar Howe exhibition ourselves, not connected to um, Dakota Modern, but sort of a smaller um, exhibition that we are developing right now. We're very excited for that. So, you know, the work that uh, Kathleen Nash Milby with the Portland Art Museum did um, inspired us and a lot of people uh, to really look at, um, you know, the work of Oscar Howe and uh, artists who maybe need more attention that they weren't able to get. So uh, we're inspired by, by that amazing work. So, mm -hmm. and then, and yeah, at the museum, um, I, I have a podcast called Pipeline Questions. Um, we'll be starting our fourth season in February. So right now we're working on our um, our interviews right now. So we're really excited about the next season. 
Well, sounds like some very, very, very big things happening coming up in 2023. And we've got a caller on the line now. Nancy is listening in Meadow Lake, Alaska on KBRW. Nancy, thanks for calling in today. Good morning. Thank you. We're right in the middle of a blizzard where I'm at. Um, <laughs> I'd just like, like to give a shout out to our new back artists from the North Slope area of the Arctic, Alaska, um, Bobby Brower. She went and had a show at um, New York Fashion Week this year. She's just an amazing artist, um, totally worthy of attention. And um, also Mitsugok Kanivyuk, he is the um, one of the founders of Arctic Art Alliance. He went and had a show and placed also in Swaya. I think that's how you say it. Um, and also, I wanted to share with with Bobby. She did um, make it to a major magazine as well, but I I just can't recall the the name of it. But these Inupiaq artists, they're they have they stand for some good values, and I just really would like to help get them out there. Well, Nancy, thank you for calling in and sharing that information with uh, regarding Bobby Brower and this other artist. And Amber Dawn, are you still on the line? Looks like yes, you're... yes, I okay. am. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can, Amber Dawn. I I, I want to ask you to to comment uh, with regard to Nancy's call. Are, are you familiar with Bobby Brower and, and the other artist there at that came down to Swaya that that Nancy mentioned? Oh my gosh, I, if I knew all the uh, SWI artists, I would be uh, brilliant. Um, <laughs> I, I can't keep tra track of all the artists. There's so many great, amazing artists that come, again, from Canada and the United States. No, I don't know all of them. Um, and there's definitely, as I said earlier, I, it's impossible for me to cover all the highlights of 2022. And I've definitely missed out some major, amazing talented individuals out there but it, it just you know it really deserves uh the indigenous fashion really just deserves um you know an hour platform to even get a fraction of what's happening out there right right well we sure do appreciate nancy's call and uh i know it's cold up there in alaska and and joe i know it's really cold there in fargo what's the temperature Oh, um it's it's negative eight right now but with wind chills it's probably negative 20. Oh, jeez, negative 20. And I don't think it's going to let up anytime soon from what I'm hearing on all these forecasts. If Nancy in Alaska's got it, we'll have it in a few days, that's for sure. Now, are you folks open during the holidays, the museum, and, and with cold weather like this, how do you, can you still draw visitors? We do. We, we, we base our opening based on the local school district. So um, if the school shuts down for the day, we, we close our doors to the public. Otherwise, uh, yeah, we stay open. Absolutely. And how big is the museum? How many square feet? And how big is your staff? Uh, I think our, I think overall it's, it's 17,000. I think it's 9,000 for the gallery spaces. Uh, There's approximately 30 staff, give or take, um, at the museum. Uh, we have three main floors of galleries and then uh, a number of smaller galleries throughout. It's, it's two buildings, so we have a little campus. Uh, one building is an education building, so we have, I think, five studios and a couple of, um, uh, we have an indigenous association space so the the native american center and then um some uh some gallery spaces in the education building as well now joe uh, another big piece of news uh this year was the stop act and um yes 
talk about that a little bit. We got a couple minutes before we have to wrap up. So you know, I'm I'm just uh, I'm I'm just learning more about the the Stop Act, um, but it feels like it's, it's a complement to uh, NAGPRA and the Indian Art uh, the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, uh, both in 1990. Um, you know, what from my understanding, the Stop Act um, really prevents artwork from leaving the country. Uh, not artwork, uh, cultural items from leaving the country. That um, and it's a, a, I believe it's all about uh, accountability, right? Um, preventing items from leaving the country by you know potentially um, uh, questionable individuals, you know, for sale and trying to make profit off of really stolen items from from our communities. And so um, it kind of gives the, uh, the Secretary of Interior the task of setting up. Um, procedures in place to to make sure that Native communities are supported in both um, uh, tracking these items, making sure that they're returned, and yeah, I think it's I think it's a great thing. It's it's a great piece of accountability both on individuals who are acquiring these pieces, but also for the government, making sure that they are working in good faith with our our tribal nations um, to securing these these sacred items. And it improves a little bit on NAGPRA um, for penalties and um, some gaps that were in that law from 1990 as well. So it's encouraging. It's, it's a step in the right direction, I believe. The STOP Act, uh, Safeguard for Tribal Objects, the Patrimony Act, uh, just earlier this week on Wednesday, President Biden signed it into law, the STOP Act. So we'll be definitely paying close attention to that uh, new law here in the months to come. Well, folks, uh, we are going to have to wrap up our discussion today. But before we do, let me thank our three guests, Amber Dawn, Bear Robe, Miranda, Bellardi lewis and Joe Williams. Join us again soon for what will be the final week of the year with another lineup of shows on Indigenous topics. I hear we're even having a trivia show, so stay tuned. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Joe McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves-Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Lifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Happy holidays. I'm Sean Spruce. Support by Department of Homeland Security. Randy Bynum, Program Manager, DHS Blue Campaign, has tips to combat human trafficking. On January 11th, wear blue, the international color of human trafficking awareness. To help raise knowledge of this crime, take a photo and then post it on social media using the hashtag WearBlueDay and empower your community to access Blue Campaign's educational resources to stay informed. Learn more about preventing human trafficking at dhs.gov slash blue campaign. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreement CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.